latest episode of the Changemakers LA podcast presented by Liska LA. The Changemakers LA podcast is a tribute to the people and the policies that make LA neighborhoods good places to live, work, and play. I'm Miranda Rodriguez, Deputy Director, here with my co-host Alex Dawson, Senior Program Officer at Liska LA. Uh, In today's episode, we'll be talking about the importance of supporting capacity building programs for diverse small businesses to ensure that we have a pipeline of contract-ready local businesses for upcoming public and private contracting opportunities. Joining us today, we have three guests. Uh, First is Howard Baum, Deputy General Counsel for the Housing Authority of the City of LA, who also sits on the Board of Directors of the Housing and Development Law Institute. Howard is a lifelong Angelino. He currently oversees all HACLA contracting and procurement operations, totaling over $46 million annually. His responsibilities include supervision of HACLA's award-winning Section 3 program and related Let's Get to Work campaign and small business campaign titled We're Open for Business. Both of these programs were recipients of the NARO National Awards of Merit, and his procurement operations have been recognized by the U.S. Communities for Innovation and Procurement Practices. Welcome, Howard. Thank you. Also here we have Elitris Harris, a proud native Chicagoan with high energy, enthusiasm, and passion for mentoring design students and teaching architecture. Elitris is an experienced project manager, administrator, and architect with more than 20 years of experience who has a true passion for developing young minority students interested in architecture and architectural students. Elitris is a Southern California NOMA chapter summer camp director and the SoCal student chapter liaison. She dedicates her time and talent to ensure that every middle school student through grad school knows about, can pursue, and excel in the field of architecture. And last but certainly not least, we have Fred Jackson, who currently works as the Assistant General Manager of Economic Development and Workforce Development Department for the City of Los Angeles. Fred is a Southern California native who has focused on real estate planning and development throughout his career. His 25 years in the industry bring experience in comprehensive urban planning, economic development, redevelopment, and residential and commercial development. Fred is a member of the Urban Land Institute, American Planning Association, and Congress for New Urbanism, and he's a former commissioner on the South Los Angeles Area Planning Commission. Welcome, Fred. Welcome, Elitris, and we look forward to the conversation. Thank you. All right. So our guests today are all in some way, shape, or form taking an equity approach um, to how they procure uh, and contract in the affordable housing and infrastructure and, and other major industries. These change makers are leading the charge to facilitate economic mobility for residents and small businesses that are often left out of large supply chain and procurement opportunities. So to get just a sense of scale and the impact that these efforts can have, the city of LA itself currently spends more than $10 billion in o- and over in over 500,000 transactions annually. And we anticipate money from the 1.2 trillion infrastructure bill to trickle down to our state and local governments. 
Um, so through targeted and intentional supplier diversity programs, policies, and resources, we know that we have an incredible opportunity to ensure that those, those dollars benefit diverse small businesses and disadvantaged communities throughout the county. Moreover, as we grapple with the disproportionate impact COVID-19 has had on businesses and residents' access to resources and services, we must talk about how we can work in collaboration to address the disproportionate experiences of overcrowded housing, lack of access to capital, and low percentage of procurement dollars going to impacted businesses. Our guests are pioneering new approaches to facilitate measurable and equitable outcomes in our challenging industries. Now let's dig in and talk a little bit more about what you all are doing to support equity outcomes and supplier diversity in each of your areas of expertise. And we're gonna start with a question for Elitris. Um, DEI is a very popular topic of discussion right now. Many corporate brands and municipalities have outlined commitments, but some have challenges creating measurable impact. SoCal NOMA's DEI challenge works with construction firms, architectural firms, and agencies to operationalize these intentions. Can you tell us more about SoCal NOMA's DEI challenge and the qualitative and quantitative outcomes it aims to achieve? Yes, um, we launched our DEI challenge um, program I, immediately after George Ford's, um, that whole situation. And what ha happened in the industry, architecture, engineering, and construction, and with the architectural schools and just people in general, people were, you know, declaring their solidarity to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they were making these broad statements and posting them everywhere. And no one was really doing, um, taking any action. So we um, decided to launch our challenge, which went beyond the pledge that everyone seemed to have been making. So all across the industry, people were pledging their support to do better and, and be more equitable and, and to come up with ways to diversify our profession, but they weren't taking any action. So what our DEI challenge did was to take all of the pledges that people were making across the industry and to present them with some actionable items that they can literally do immediately. So we came up with 10 items that, that, um, that people, firms, uh, organizations could really dive into. And they were um, really simple things, but that helped them to really evaluate um, where they were and how they would, um, how they can move forward. So we came up with these 10 action items. We put the challenge out. We first asked them to pledge. And once they did, they went um, and did some introspection. Um, we had a series of surveys that they took within their own industry or firm or organization. And then they looked at their, um, demographics, their actions, and they were able to get points for each one of the 10 actions that we have. And then once they did their intake um, documentation and they saw where they were, some were extremely alarmed and others were actually doing a great job um, with implementing some programs that they already had in place. And then we took them through a series of um, sessions that presented them with um, ways in which they can make these changes. 
and we have been going strong for the past uh, two years, and we're on our third DEI challenge cohorts. And um, these firms are are making a tremendous difference uh, in our industry, and we feel like it's because of the um, quantitative introspection that they are required to do every year. They need to assess themselves. And then we take their assessment of themselves and, um, and pair that with their peers. And we come out with the report each year that helps them see where they are on the bar of being diverse, equity, and inclusive. And are those results published somewhere online that we could share with folks after this call? They are not online at this time. Um, we, are, we are just finishing our second year. And the first year we had decided only to share it with the actual cohorts who had participated. But at the end of this round, we are going to publicly share them on our website and it will be available for you to use and to see um, one, who these firms are, who are really taking steps and their, their score. So we're basically scoring them how diverse, equitable, and inclusive they are in the industry. Yeah, and I think these assessments would be great models for other people who are interested in kind of running similar programs. We then launched the same program with our architecture schools because we felt or the students actually asked us to do it. And so we actually have a sister DEI challenge for colleges and universities. Great, thank you. Fred, this next question is for you. So we know that the city has been doing a lot to improve access to city contracts and the overall sustainability of microenterprises and small businesses within LA. Um, this includes the launch of the very exciting new ramp platform and some technical assistance and other incubator programs that you guys are rolling out to increase small business capacity and eligibility for contracting. So why is infrastructure like the city's ramp platform important to improving equity outcomes in the contracts and procurement system? And what role do you think this is helping the city play in the larger uh, supplier diversity ecosystem or landscape? Well, thanks, Miranda and, and Alex, um, for this opportunity. Um, yes, the, the Regional Alliance Marketplace for Procurement Ramp and similar platforms are extremely important and necessary to improving them to providing equitable access, as well as opportunities to a diverse constituency of stakeholders, businesses, vendors, and other companies that have traditionally been underrepresented and underserved. Um, and so diverse owned businesses often face hurdles that other companies do not, you know, including access to capital, uh, the ability to network, uh, systemic prejudices, and other issues. And so it's incumbent upon the city uh, to support supplier diversity because it's, it's the right thing to do. Um, it, these businesses contribute to the economic vitality of the city and they should participate in receiving contracts and dollars that the city disseminates. Um, most diverse businesses are small and offering them contracts and business opportunities allow them to grow and compete better in the marketplace. Also, when the city buys or contracts with a diverse business, it allows them to support current jobs, to create new jobs, increase their wages and pay more in tax revenue, which benefit our local neighborhood and communities. 
And I know that the regional marketplace is also supposed to work with other large uh, prime contractors and eventually maybe other municipalities to aggregate opportunities and be able to um, push that out to the small business community. Um, so wondering, you know, why you guys designed it that way and, and what role the city is playing in that larger ecosystem to support supplier diversity. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we, we, it's Southern California, you know, we, we, Los Angeles is the, the big fish in, in, in the, in the sea here, but um, there are a number of cities and municipalities and entities, you know, there's Metro, the County um, and other, Hakla and others, right, who are major contractors um, and provide a substantial amount of dollars um, in the region. And so it only makes sense that we collaborate um, instead of competing with one another um, and build upon some of the, use some of the existing infrastructure that's in place um, to benefit all of us, right? And so that's been, um, kind of the impetus behind RAMP. Great. And shout out to your RAMP team who blasted out our ascent. We have a Ascend LA program. It's a supplier diversity program. And it got sent out through the RAMP platform and we saw our applications double. So, you know, it works. I saw that. It was so exciting to see that. Well, Howard, let's get you in the mix. Um, eligibility is a major challenge to accessing contracts with government agencies. What partnerships or programs might exist or are being developed to bridge the gap between eligibility and opportunity for HACLA's affordable housing projects? Sure. And, and let me start by saying thank you uh, for the invitation. Uh, I appreciate being here today, among, uh, particularly among these colleagues. It's a, it's a real privilege. Um, I think it really starts, and I'm going to break this up into two parts. It starts with partnerships, and then we can talk a little bit more about eligibility because they're both really important components here. Um, and I will say uh, along the lines of partnerships, um, it starts with visibility, understanding what kind of contracting opportunities are out there. You do that through partners. You do that through other means. We think that RAMP is terrific. Uh, Rick, a big nod to, excuse me, Fred, big nod to you because we think this is an essential component of our procurement as we move forward to increase uh, diversity and outreach to, to vendors that might not otherwise be aware of our, our contracting opportunities. So we're really in favor of that. With respect to partnerships, um, again, it's essential to bring awareness to contracting opportunities that exist at HACLA and elsewhere. And so RAMP helps do that. Um, but it's also important to eliminate barriers to contracting, right? And this is another component of it. So we build awareness uh, with every procurement we do, we, of course, will advertise on RAMP, formerly LA Bovin. Uh, we will also notify over 40 different uh, organizations that we recognize uh, help facilitate minority contracting, and whether that's the SBA, whether that's the Hispanic or Black Chambers of Commerce, whether it's the uh, Women's Business Association, the LA um, uh, Valley Economic Development Center, Slate Z, you name it, we, we really do a pretty broad blast about what we're doing. But then it's the partnerships themselves. So training and, and getting the word out there about how you do business with us and how you understand what the impediments might to be is really critical to us. And so um, pre-pandemic, uh, and I say pre-pandemic because it makes a big difference for us, you know, in the, the three years before that, we probably did 40 different events with the city, with the county, with others, with the SBA, um, with the Department of Labor, 
with HUD, you name it. We were out there doing not just events, but trainings and different kinds of things to help folks understand what it meant to do business with public agencies. And we felt that was a really good exercise. And unfortunately, the pandemic slowed things a little, but we uh, see this, we see things getting brighter and better for us. Uh, so in 2021, for example, and I, I'm gonna keep myself honest here because my staff would be angry if I didn't. Uh, we uh, held some events together with HUD, with Slate Z, with the Valley Economic Development Corporation, with the Watts Rising Small Business Summit. And these, again, were events where folks could understand how you do business with us, how you register with us as a vendor. We have an individual dedicated to that. So if somebody is struggling on our website, we're going to help you do that. In terms of partnerships, um, there's a lot to be said for them, and they're, they're critically important here. I mentioned some of the agencies we're working with. Another one that we work with very closely is actually affiliated with the city. It's Meriwether and Williams, who provides insurance and bonding assistance to small businesses that might not otherwise have the capacity. And that kind of goes to the second part of this, which is eligibility. It is a major impediment being eligible to contract with a public agency. And what's really important for folks to understand here is when we're talking about developing affordable housing, improving it, rehabilitating it, maintaining it, whatever we wanna call it, all of those activities are public works activities. And that's a really important thing for your viewers and listeners to understand because as a public works activity, that means that those vendors have to be registered with the state. It means that when they bid on projects, they have to post bid bonds. If they're awarded the work, they have to post performance bonds and payment bonds etc. And these are things that may be new to them that they don't have to do in the private sector. So even those who are well qualified and experienced who want to make that transition, find themselves sort of facing all these different barriers and things they may not be familiar with. And so it's really important that we help them understand what those barriers are. And that is the purpose of many of the trainings that we've been doing in partnership with others. Thanks, Howard. So opening up access to affordable housing contracting opportunities is a really powerful way to drive forward racial and economic justice. Billions are invested in affordable housing each year. And in 2020 alone, projects that received a low-income housing tax credit allocation cost upward of $12 billion to develop. At LISC LA, we've introduced a legislative concept that will help us better understand how investment in light tech projects trickle down to diverse led contractors and firms. AB 2873, sponsored by Assemblymember Reggie Jones-Sawyer, will require that developers share data on supplier and contractor demographics. This data would be reported annually by TCAC, and ultimately we want to use these data to create DEI goals that will lead to wealth building opportunities for communities typically excluded from them. So I have a question for all of you or for anyone who wants to tackle it. Um, setting targeted race and gender outcomes and impact goals can be a challenge given legislative barriers like state proposition 209, which prohibits the state, local governments, districts, um, public universities and schools from discriminating against or giving preferential treatment to any individual or group in public employment, public education, or public contracting on the basis of race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin. How are your agencies working within this policy landscape while addressing supplier diversity needs? And are there other metrics or impact indicators you're evaluating? Not all at one time, right? <laughs> um, 
Um, well, so, you know, for the city um, and with uh, the economic and workforce development department with our grants and, and programs that we have launched, um, you know, we weigh areas that are low, moderate income. Um, we give preference and weigh those applications higher. Um, there is a Cal Enviro screen um, platform, which um, um, scales and rates the, the amount of pollution. And as we all come to know, you know, uh, environmental justice and areas that um, have higher pollution rates tend to be those areas that are poor, um, which tend to be those areas also that are um, uh, communities of color. And so um, we're able to kind of skew and, and give preference to those areas that are predominant by um, and, and have received, um, have not received a significant amount of investment over the years. Um, and so that's how we've tailored some of our programs to target um, areas that traditionally have been left out. Anyone else want to jump in on that one? I mean, I'll, I'll just add the observation that I fundamentally believe that small, yeah. minority, diverse businesses can compete very effectively if you eliminate barriers to entry. Fundamentally believe it. I've seen it over and over again. Um, hope that we get a chance and perhaps some of these follow-up questions to talk a little bit more about specific actions that we're taking to help in that respect. So well, what we're doing at in the architecture, construction, um, interiors, engineering industry is that we are working with the community development boards in minority communities. Um, a lot of them have been forming these uh, boards and organizations or non-for-profit to oversee the built things that are being built in their neighborhood. And so what we have been doing is reaching out to these boards and making sure that they know that they have the power to um, ask these contractors and especially developers who are developing these um, buildings in their neighborhoods about um their equity inclusion um and to make a really big deal about it and so we have set up programs where we go to these meetings we talk to them we give them actionable items that they can ask we send them to the city um, council meetings of uh, the um, planning meetings to talk about what's going on in their neighborhood and, and lay out their demands. So we can't, um, because of Prop 209, we can't literally say that these contractors need to do that um, or developers need to include minorities and um, small owned businesses in their projects, but the neighborhoods can raise enough um, awareness and let them know that they are um, requiring this for them to continue to build in their neighborhoods. And that has been the, um, the route we have been taking. That's okay, normal. Yeah, thank you for touching on that community engagement piece and really involving neighborhoods and decision-making power. Um, Howard, somewhat following up on the, the comment you previously made, what would you say is the biggest challenge in increasing supplier diversity outcomes in the affordable housing development and construction process? Yeah, so I touched on it already. It really goes back to the barriers to participation, and they fall into a lot of different categories. So, for example, there's a lack of understanding. And... How do you bid on anything that is a public works type contract where you have to have bonding in place and sometimes special insurance requirements? 
And we do that through training and we do that through support. So we, for example, have developed a website that is filled with information about there, there was a assembly, or I should say Senate bill, SB 854, followed by 96 that was adopted back in 2015 that required all businesses that do public works contracting to register with the state. Uh, a lot of vendors didn't know that. So we tried to help our small businesses shepherd through that process, gave them education on what to do, how to register, uh, do's and don'ts, et cetera. And we continue to remind them annually. So, because we didn't want to lose those businesses. They're critical to us. They support our neighborhoods. You know, we've got 14 large public housing sites and we want to make sure that, uh, that our economic activity supports the neighborhoods surrounding them, not just our, our housing sites themselves. Um, vendor registration. Um, if you have language barriers or if you just need assistance, we have folks who, who will pick up the phone and speak to you and get you registered. It's really important to you. Something that uh, is a little bit unusual is if you do apply for a contract and you don't get that award, we'll provide you a debrief. We'll walk you through the strengths and weaknesses of our proposal so that next time you bid, you have a better opportunity. And in fact, we've seen multiple examples where vendors have come back and won bids the next time around. And so we're thrilled about that. Um, there's lack of capacity issues that are challenging for these uh, vendors as well. And so we talked about bonding and insurance. One of the things that we've looked at is where do we have the discretion under state and sometimes federal law to waive bonding requirements or at least reduce those because a lot of small businesses don't have the capacity or they've never had to do this before. So Meriwether and Williams, which again, you know, through association with the city, provides this kind of support. They do a great job. We've done joint presentations with them and they in fact have helped many vendors of our small vendors, I should say, uh, not only get bonding capacity, but increase it and ultimately be able to do contracts with us. And then there's something really important which are financial constraints that are often forgotten about. Typically when you do business with a public entity and you provide your services and you submit your invoice, you may not get paid for 120, 150 days. Businesses can't afford the carrying costs. They have to pay their employees. They have to buy their materials and supplies. So we've done something that I think is kind of innovative here at Hackla. We moved from net 90, 60, 30 to pay immediately. And what that means is this. If a vendor submits an invoice to us, it's going to get reviewed immediately to make sure, of course, that the work has been performed or the goods have been delivered and that whatever they've provided and billed at align with the contract but once they do that, it gets processed for payment. So we can process payments in as little as a week. More frequently, it's probably two weeks, but it's well under this you know, 90, 120 days that a lot of vendors uh, are accustomed to and have to, to live with. So we think that's really important. All of these sort of little pieces come together. I mean, we're, you know, we try these things, um, but we're more concerned about outcomes than we are really with just sort of these inputs and thinking they're going to work. We've talked to our vendors. One of the things that we also track is um, our Meebe Weebe participation. And for those who aren't familiar with the terms, Weebe is a, a women-owned uh, business or business-owned enterprise. A Meebe is a minority-owned business enterprise. And when we spend our federal dollars, we track what we're spending towards um, uh, with all of our contractors, and particularly with respect to Meebe's and Weebe's. And over the last four years, we've averaged 40%. 40% of our contracts going to Meebe Weebe organizations. Um, we're really proud of that number. Um, we uh, are still a work in progress, can always get better at what we do, and we'll continue to do that. But, you know, again, outcomes are what really matters here. We've got to be good listeners. We've got to really 
sit down with our vendors, understand what their constraints are so that we can do a better job. Yeah, I mean, two, two weeks is pretty impressive. I don't even think LIST can, as a nonprofit, gets our payments out that quickly. So bravo to Hakla. So switching gears just a little bit, uh, this question is for Elitrice. So we know that you have a passion for working with BIPOC students that are interested in architecture um, from elementary school to high school. And one of our previous episodes uh, of the podcast was on the school to career pipeline. And Joy Masha, a guest on that episode, discussed the importance of seeing the whole family in order to reach the child. And the example used was a family of five having one computer to, to work remotely during COVID-19. So for, for K through 12 students who may go to a school that doesn't have um, one of these kind of special architecture programs or are from a family that um, may think that, you know, career track is expensive or, or not even in their purview, um, how do you think we best expose students at this level to ensure there's a diverse pipeline of um, and career pathways uh, in the industries of architecture and construction and engineering. And, and what do you think are some ideal roles for uh, stakeholders in this effort, thinking about, you know, how can we pull in our community development partners to help support those? So this is a very um, interesting area creating a pipeline and making sure that we include the minority community. So um, what we do here at Soconoma is we put on um, several workshops and a summer camp, year-round workshops and a summer camp that introduces uh, middle school students and high school students to architecture um, in a way that is engaging and fun, but also because we have found that uh, minority students are not, as you have alluded to in this example, even exposed to architecture as a career option. They haven't seen anyone in their community as an architect and um, their parents might not even comprehend like exactly what we do. So exposing and promoting it is really um, not happening in our minority communities. And so what we did is took it upon ourselves to create an avenue and an opportunity for them to do that. We think this is very, very important. And our pipeline actually goes from middle school all the way to licensure and practicing in the architecture, engineering and construction industry. The way we bring in um, stakeholders is that at each one of these stages, it's very important that students know well, we take architecture, in, for instance, we are just the start of something being built, meaning we design it. It then moves to the next modality, which is to engineer it. And after it's engineered, it has to be built. So we bring in the stakeholders of every part of the built environment and have them to share with these students um, how their part or their link in the chain um, of building a building and creating a community. We also feel it's important that we bring in the entire community into this process. And so we give all stakeholders an opportunity to present how they affect a, the student. So none of this will really matter to them unless they can see themselves in it. 
And so we focus on the student and making sure that they can see themselves on any part of or any link in the chain. This is going to be the last question. Each of you, um, please do provide a response. Um, but uh, as you are all organizing to address supplier diversity needs, what would you say are the largest capacity building needs for diverse small businesses? And what do you think is the number one solution to address those needs? You only get one. <laughs> so there's a lot to uh, unpack with that question. Um, I'll take a little piece of it. I'm sure my colleagues uh, great, great. it as well. You know, one of the things that we, we need to do with our any kind of contracting is making things um, scalable for entities. And what I mean by that is if you have a job that's a significant scale job, multi-million dollar job, it may be that small business can't participate in that procurement. They may not have the capacities that I talked about earlier. On the other hand, maybe they can serve as a subcontractor to a prime, or maybe those jobs can be broken up into smaller parts that lend themselves uh, to procurement, uh, an opportunity, a contracting opportunity for a smaller business. And so I know that's one of the things that we think about here at HACLA. Um, we do push our developers and our redevelopment partners to do the same, to engage small businesses. And we think that helps make a difference. Um, it's something that we don't, it's not always intuitive. People think, oh, scale and money saved. Um, we don't necessarily agree with that. Uh, sometimes scale is monopoly power and not something the money saved. So we think that uh, that is a really good tool and strategy for engaging more small businesses. That's where Hackle lives. Our contracts are much more modest in size. Most of them are well under a million dollars when we go out for work. And so we, we think we kind of live in the true small business space, if you will. And um, we're encouraging, again, our large-scale developers to do something similar. You stole my one thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, I think it's, um, I'm sorry, it's a combo, is partnership and information. Um, because before Prop 209, um, businesses, entities were required to have a minority participation. Right. And now we don't have that. So I think partnerships and somehow finding a way for it to be a requirement to work with a small business to seek out and find um, the opportunities within the procurement process or with, within their their uh, bid or the process for them to have to use uh, one of these small businesses. And I think it's it's on us, those that are putting these RFPs out, to find a way to include that um, as some kind of a requirement that they would provide an opportunity because that is what people are looking for, the small businesses and, um, and how we might diversify the, the supply line is just creating more opportunities and partnerships. Yeah, and, and just to add to, you know, um, both what Howard and Elitrice um, mentioned, um, you know, oftentimes the business, the service and the products they're doing are providing, they got that down packed, right? It's, it's all the other um, um, administrative aspects that uh, a lot of the 
businesses uh, need to shore up. You know, for example, if you're going to do business in the city, you need to have a business tax registration certificate, right? So oftentimes we will have these various programs and we find that these entities don't have that BTRC. Um, so that's that's the first thing, right? In addition to that, it's it's having kind of your business plan, your financial documents, accounting documents, all of those um, documents which validate you as a business. Um, of course, the certifications also assist and, and help um, um, identify you for these prime and, and subprime contracting opportunities as well. And so um, I, that's what we found, that, that there's been a lot of businesses that apply for our grants and other programs and they come to us and we have to deny them or put them on the shelf to help them out. Uh, but that puts them down on the list uh, on, on, on those that we can assist. So we have to assist those first that we just to the sheer volume of, of entities who are applying for our programs. And so um, all of the administrative stuff, and I think uh, within, this is a shameless plug, um, EWDD, we have 10 business source centers um, throughout the city. Um, those business source centers can assist any business with all of their administrative paperwork, legal uh, assistance, um, financial accounting assistance, which are bookkeeping and books and, um, and whatnot, um, in order to prepare you to um, propose and to present a, a proposal um, um, for us and others. And so um, that's my add to, to this conversation is, get your house in order, the, the, the administrative piece of it. If I might add one more comment, because Fred said something I think is really important. And for all your listeners here who are with public agencies, really important to look at contracting through the lens of contractors and understand that the city, for example, has its own ordinances, its own requirements. Uh, you know, Fred touched on some. Uh, the county has others. Um, HACLA has its own, LAUSD has its own, College District has its own. And so every time you apply, submit a bid, if you will, on a procurement, the requirements differ and it could be pretty overwhelming. And we need to be sensitive to that. We need to slim it down where we can. We need to provide opportunities to cure documents at times where it's curable, where it doesn't undermine the integrity of the procurement. So for example, we can't let you change your pricing twice, but we might let you submit that form you're missing because it's not consequential. And those are the kinds of things that we can do. We need to have those kinds of sensitivities. Um, they harm no one. In fact, they benefit everybody because they increase competition and they provide additional contracting opportunities. So. Great. You're here. Well, thanks again uh, to all of you guys for joining us today and sharing all of the great work that you're doing within your agencies. Um, we know that your insights are essential to understanding how we can better work together to open up supply chains and procurement opportunities to advance more equitable outcomes for communities in, throughout Los Angeles. So again, we appreciate your time and I look forward to to seeing all the good work that you're doing out there in the world. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. This episode of Changemakers LA was made possible by our partner, California Community Foundation. If you'd like to learn more about how we support place-based initiatives for housing and economic development at LISC LA, please visit us online at www.list.org 
loss-angeles and follow us on Twitter at LiskLA. You can find the rest of the series on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Subscribe to hear more conversations about the people and places that shape Los Angeles. This podcast was produced in collaboration with Growing Greatness Now, a consulting firm committed to social and environmental justice.